Have you opened your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? And as far as I can tell, this will be the last sermon in a series of sorts, the fourth, or excuse me, the fifth and final. Let me briefly tell you where we've been and why we're ending where we are. We began by looking at how we were all ruined in Adam and how we were redeemed in Christ. What we lost in Adam, we found again in the person of the Lord Jesus. Next, we looked at having been found in Christ, we were raised to walk in newness of life, to walk according to our new nature, our new heart, seeking the things where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And third, we saw that we are to do so as wheat amongst tares, growing together until the time of the harvest, when Christ shall make the great distinction or separation between the wheat and the tares. Last week, we looked out of John, 1 John chapter 1 and 2, where we saw that our love should be directed toward one another as commanded of Christ and not having our affection or our love set on the passing things of the world. So today we're coming full circle. In full circle, I mean that we are redeemed in Christ to ultimately and finally live with Christ forever. So this morning we're going to look at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, I don't remember ever having preached a sermon specifically on the second coming. That's to my great error and fault over 22 years of preaching, but certainly it's been interspersed and intermixed in various sermons and in various ways, but just to settle down and look solely at the second coming of Christ, I pray that this is going to be a benefit for you that it's going to comfort and edify you, but also I pray for some that it may unsettle you. All of those things are bound up in considering the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ is the hope of every Christian. We sang it this morning. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. But the companion truth of that the return of Christ is the hope of every Christian, but the return of Christ is also the dread of every unbeliever. And here is my hope this morning for Christians, that your hope would be renewed, that you would be encouraged and even emboldened to live in the face of a godless world carried on by tremendous hope of Christ's return. But also my hope is that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, through his word, being preached, would so shake and unsettle those that have yet to come to Christ and that he may show you the reality of this coming day. Now, I believe it is this day that Malachi, the prophet, refers to near the end of the Old Testament when he says, this day is burning like an oven. And what that means, partly at least, is that it's prepared, it's ready. 
the temperature has already reached its point. That's why it's burning like an oven. And no man knows the hour. Isn't it interesting that not even Christ, the God-man, knew the hour of his own return? He said it's only known by the Father. Surely that was part of what he had submitted himself to and part of the humiliation that he went under in Philippians chapter 2, that even this type of information was known only to the Father and not unto himself. So I want you to read with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 13 and read all the way down through the 11th verse of chapter 5. You've heard these verses very often beside a grave of a loved one or at a funeral sermon. I've read these verses countless times at the cemetery and for good reason. A cemetery in this life is a place of great mourning and weeping. But that same plot of land on this day is a, is a plot of land of great rejoicing and victory. And Christ completely sets those things on their head. So the next time you go, and you may go this week, and it may be my funeral you're attending. The next time you go, remember that truth. Shed your tears. Weep and mourn as those who have hope. But don't forget that this very place is going to be the place of tremendous victory for those who have died in Christ. So let's read verse 13. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For they say, when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort 
each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning. We realize that these are the very God-breathed words that you would have us to hear. Lord, give a spiritual ear to hear the truth. Give a spiritual eye to see it. Father, we pray that you would give us a moment of sober contemplation to consider the great reality of this coming day, not to dismiss it, certainly not to hope that it never comes, but to be amongst those who are, even as John, yearning and asking and pleading for the quick return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be comforted concerning those who have gone on before us to be with you. May we be edified and built up in this truth. And may you use this truth for your own glory in the unsettling of those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. We pray and ask it in your name. Amen. The first coming of Jesus, what we call the first advent, secured the second advent of Jesus. The fact that he came the first time in humility, wrapped in flesh, accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do, secures and guarantees his second coming. He is coming to bring all things to an end or to a culmination. The second coming is altogether different than the first, though, for obvious reasons. The second, in the second coming, Jesus is not coming in great humility. He's coming in great power. He's not coming submitting himself to his own law. He's not coming entering into his own creation in a submissive way. He is coming with great power and glory, declaring himself to be king over everyone and everything. He's coming to receive a people that he has redeemed by his, the shedding of his own blood. He's coming as a bridegroom to receive a bride that he has clothed himself in white, representing the righteousness that he has given. So before we return to these verses that we read, I want to read to you several other scriptures that speak to the reality of the second coming and also attaching to that reality the hope that we have as Christians. And I couldn't help this morning but think of these words of a hymn that Brother Mike used to lead us in fairly often. And I can hear him singing it even now. He's, these, this is the first line. Marvelous message we bring. Glorious carol we sing. Wonderful word of the king. Jesus is coming again. Can't you hear him singing it? I can. So listen to these verses that speak to the second coming of Christ. Paul, writing to Titus in the second chapter, says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
And this grace that has appeared to all men is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways Paul describes that the people of God in the present age should live, not just soberly, righteously, and godly, but as those who are longing for the return and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter writes of the same thing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. This is a living hope with which we take with us everywhere. Christ is coming again. He goes on and he says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. At the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ, John sees the resurrected Christ. He has a vision of Christ and he hears the words of Christ. And he declares in the seventh and eighth verses of chapter one, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. This is no secret. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was, or excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Fast forwarding a little further in Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Adam's first realization in the garden after the fall was what? Nakedness and shame. Jesus says, be watchful, keep your garments. How do you keep them? By faith, through perseverance. Don't lay them aside, lest you be found naked and in shame at his coming. And then lastly, before we return to 1 Thessalonians, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks of this day, and this is where we find out that not even he knew the hour of it. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now listen, please listen carefully and closely. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And then what's the implication there? Then it all ceased. All the eating, all the drinking, all the marrying and being given in marriage came to a complete and final end, save for those who were in the ark. That ark is a type of Jesus Christ. You must be found in him on the day of judgment, or like all of these in Noah's day, you will perish in the flood of his wrath. 
Speaking of those still that lived in the day of Noah, he said, They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken in two. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice that Matthew says it in such a way that it's applicable to everyone. You do not know what hour your Lord is coming. He is the Lord of the godly, the Lord of those whom he has redeemed, and he is also the Lord of the unbeliever. That's both the glory and the horror of this day, isn't it? Enter into the joy of your Lord is spoken to the believer. Depart from me, I never knew you, is spoken to the unbeliever, even the one who had a profession upon his lips. But Lord, we did all of these things. That's the great distinction and separation that the Lord will make on this day. Now going back to what we read, you noticed that twice in these verses, Paul wrote, comfort one another with these words. That's the context of this passage. Believers in Thessalonica were concerned about their believing family members and loved ones who had died. And so Paul instructs them. And in instructing them, we have embedded in this context of comfort some of the details concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now, obviously... We would like for there to be many more details, wouldn't we? We would want to know things like the day and the hour. But God in his wisdom has withheld that from us. We would like to know any number of things about this day. But we're given enough, and what we have here is sufficient to comfort and edify us to to renew our hope and steadfastness in Christ, but there's also enough here to make those who are outside of Christ fearful. And so I want you to look, first of all, in verse 13. And let's just deal with this in the context in which we find it. Those who are Concerned for loved ones who have died in Christ. And Paul says in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant. And that's not Paul condescending or demeaning. Paul just basically is saying, I want you to be in the know about what has happened to those who have died in Christ. And so he says, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's the first thing we gather from this, right? Paul says, your loved ones who have died, whose physical bodies have worn out and have succumbed to the wage of sin being a bodily, not a spiritual, but in here, a bodily death. The first area of comfort is to know that they've just fallen asleep. 
He says this, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So, be comforted, comforted and encouraged here. Your and my sorrow over loved ones who die in Christ is real. It's welcomed of the scriptures. It's totally allowable. We gather that because even Stephen, the martyr, after his stoning, do you remember what is said of him? As the men carried him to his burial, what were they doing? They were making a great lamentation over him. They were sorrowful. Here was, in their eyes, a champion of the faith whose face was just glowing as he gave and bore witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ, how he fulfilled perfectly all of those types and shadows out of the Old Testament. And after his martyrdom, they carry him to his grave, yes, and they are greatly lamenting his death. But Paul says, just sorrow is those who have hope. The second coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead is the very backbone of this hope. Here's the reason that we can have it in verse 14. For, or therefore, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we're here in unison, those that have placed faith in Christ, we are here believing that Jesus died and rose again. Amen? If we believe this, even so God will bring with him. There's the second or third now comforting fact about those who have died in Christ. They are with him. And when he comes, he's bringing them with him. Paul would say it another way to the Corinthians. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not yet in a glorified body. The body is resting in the grave. But on this day that Paul is writing about, there will be a reuniting of soul and body. Resurrected into a glorious body as Christ had at post-resurrection. So our loved ones that have died are with Christ even now. And when he returns, he is bringing them with him. Again, Paul says, these are the ones who sleep in Jesus. They're taking a rest in anticipation of that more glorious and full eternal rest that they will be ushered into at Christ's return. Verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive. So we know about what's happening to those that have died in Christ. What about to those that are living at Christ's return? Paul addresses that. He says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So again, the dead in Christ that have died have a place of privilege. They have gone through and experienced to the full the last enemy of death. Their body has been sown in corruption. Now it's being raised incorruptible, and it's fitting that they go first. But that doesn't negate the fact 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So here we have living believer in the flesh, on earth, and those saints that have gone on before who are even now in the presence of the Lord. He is bringing them with him. Then what happens to us all? But before we get to what's happening to us all, I want you to notice what some of the old Puritan authors call heavenly fanfare. <laughs> and read it again with me in verse 16. Listen to the heavenly fanfare. What's, what is taking place in the heavens on this day? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. That's the heavenly fanfare. And let's not miss any detail of this, right? Because this is the day that we're all longing for. This is the great expectation of every Christian. And again, this is the great horror and dread of every unbeliever. Because this trumpet that I'm going to speak more about here in just a moment signals two things. Eternal rest and security for the believer. Eternal glory and being in the presence of the Lord forever. But it also is the first and final signal that those who are outside of Christ will forever be objects of his wrath. This is the signal that the day of salvation has come to an end. The day of grace is over. And so the first point to be made of this day of heavenly fanfare is to notice that it is the Lord himself. He is not dispatching even Michael the archangel on this greatest day. Certainly angels will be in attendance. They will be accompanying him along with the spirits of just men made perfect. But we can't miss the fact that this is the Lord himself descending from heaven. You remember as he ascended in Acts chapter 1, that some of the disciples, the apostles were there and they were gazing into heaven somewhat dumbfounded at what they had just seen. How the heavens seemed to swallow Christ up. And then they were asked, why do you stand there stargazing? This same Jesus that you just saw ascend into heaven will so come in like manner. It's the same Christ that's going to descend himself. And this is the, the description that, that Paul gives us. This is what Christ would have known about this day. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. You can read that a couple of ways, but one, one way to read it is that this is the shout of Christ himself. Who's going to hear that? Everybody. Living and dead alike. Some would prefer to read it this way, that this shout is coming from the voice of the archangel. It doesn't really matter. It's going to be heard. And with the trumpet of God. Does anything get your attention like a trumpet? 
I hear one in my own home from time to time. And it's an attention getter. That's what it's designed to do. It's been used in history to call men to battle. It's been used in history to call men to retreat. Some of you have, as I have, stood by the graveside of a military veteran and have heard, I suppose it's a trumpet or something very similar, being played. How sobering is it? The trumpet of God. And I want you to hearken back to what you've read out of of Leviticus 25. And, And I think this thought is right. This is not my sentence, but I'm going to read it to you. Quote, the fulfillment of the trumpet ordinance in Leviticus 25, and accordingly as proclaiming liberty throughout the universe for all the children of God, this is the everlasting jubilee. The trumpet, of, uh, the trumpet being sounded in Leviticus 25 was the sound of freedom, jubilee, the, the feast of trumpets. And here we find this trumpet of God being blown Again, it's a summons, it's an attention getter, but it's also a signal, a signal of final and ultimate deliverance from the tyranny of the adversary of death, the grave, and sin. One, ap- one point of application at least needs to be pressed here. When you read verse 16 honestly, does it sound like this is done in secret? Just look at the words. The Lord himself descending, shouting, voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. That's why John would say at the beginning of Revelation, a verse we've already read, every eye will see him. And then Paul would write to the Philippians, not only will every eye see him, every tongue is going to confess, every knee is going to bow. This is an event of total awareness. The words are too all-inclusive in these passages I've referenced. And even this holy fanfare of verse 16, who's going to miss it? But this gets us down to, we're going in reverse now, back to the first point. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the catching up of believers. The Latin word here is rapture. The catching up. Uh, The timing of this is debated. But what we can say with absolute certainty is that those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. This is the great catching up of believers. And again, there is a a distinction being made. We read it out of the Olivet Discourse. Two in the field. Two women at the mill. 
the great separation. This is the angels that we read out of Matthew 13, making the distinction and the separation between the wheat and the tares. This is the final harvest. This is God bringing all the wheat into his barn and forever bundling together the tares and submitting them to the destruction of eternal fire. Again, the dead have the privileged place, rising first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Can, can you imagine the glorious nature of that day? And let me just make this point as well. Some see this as the great escape, so to speak. And if that's the way you view it, you're missing the point. This is not the great escape from whatever's being left behind here. This is the great meeting of Christ in the air. This is you and I finally going to where we are intended to go. This life is a pilgrimage. We're passing through. We're not to love the things of this world. Why? Because they're passing We are finally and ultimately being taken to Christ. He is gathering us unto himself. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. He is not going to lose us. This day is the beginning of the end that has no end. And here is the first place where Paul says, Therefore, based upon all of these truths, comfort one another with these words. And so far in the passage, we've been comforted concerning those that have gone on before. Knowing that, yes, they are indeed with Christ, even now sleeping in Christ, resting in him having the place of privilege, coming with Christ. He is going to bring them with himself. We've been reminded that this day is going to come and we're not going to miss it. We're not going to be preoccupied. We're not going to be in some remote part of the earth where we don't hear the trumpet of God. If we're asleep physically, we're going to hear it. Nothing is going to cause this to escape our notice. But then... Having been comforted by these words, Paul moves in the fifth chapter, in the first verse. He reminds us concerning the times and seasons, brethren, I have no need. You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of his return, so comes as a thief in the night. That's what Jesus had said. We've read it already. Revelation 16, 15. Let me read it again. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they shall see his shame. The thief in the night picture or illustration is used in these various places that we've, that we've brought it out of the scriptures to speak of sudden, suddenness and captures the element of surprise. We're told in other places that this is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's the sudden nature of it. 
And notice how Paul adds to this in verse 3 of chapter 5. For when they say peace and safety, peace and safety equates with the eating, the drinking, the marrying, and being given in marriage. When those who are outside of Christ begin to say all is well, Look, here we are so far removed now from what we read in the scriptures and Christ is yet to come. Therefore, I surmise with my great intellect and wisdom that he'll never come. That's the one to whom Paul is writing. When you begin to say peace and safety, all is well, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Don't miss the words, sudden destruction. There is a doctrine taught by some that teaches that you'll have a second opportunity. You'll have a second chance to realize what you refused to realize here and now. Square that with this for me, if you can. For when they say peace and safety and sudden then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. And hearkening back to the Olivet Discourse, even though they're wanting to run to the mountains and to the hills and hide themselves and even asking the rocks to fall upon them, here Paul says there is no escape. can't get away from it. You didn't want to hear the trumpet, but you've heard it. You didn't want to hear the voice of Christ or the voice of the archangel, but you've heard it. You didn't want to see the Lord himself descending from the clouds because you've never believed it before. Well, on this day, you'll see it. And you will either be overjoyed or full of absolute dread and terror. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not intentionally trying to frighten you, but I'm not intentionally trying not to frighten you either. You are wise to flee to Christ. He is your only hope and stay on this day. There is nowhere else you can turn to go back to the reverence of those in Noah's day, they had no other recourse than to get into the ark, and they did not. How foolish did Noah sound as he preached the righteous judgment of God to come? It had never rained before. They didn't know what that was. Here's a man building a boat. And they discounted everything that he said. And even though, surely, I picture this in my own imagination, probably right, that as it began, as the floodwaters began to rise, what did they do? They, they went to the next highest point, the next highest point, the next highest point. Maybe they, in the end, climbed a tree. I don't know. But eventually, the waters covered the face of the earth, the mountains. There was no other place to turn, and they perished. There is no other place to turn except to Christ 
or sudden destruction comes, even as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And then in verse 4, there's another contrast. After this sobering news, Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Remember, Paul would write to the Colossian church that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. God has intervened in our lives, taken us off a course of destruction, and He has placed us upon the rock of Christ, and now we are living in the light of Christ. Paul says, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Instead, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. And here, so as not to be confused, this sleep is not the sleep of physical death that Paul refers to earlier. He's talking about the sleep of spiritual lethargy, unconcern, not being watchful. We know that because the very opposite in verse 6, he says, But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. How do you stay sober spiritually as a Christian? He tells us, putting on the breastplate of faith, hearkening back to what he would write to the Ephesian church in chapter 6 as as he lists for us what we call the armor of God, notice the breastplate covering all the vital organs is faith here. And as a helmet, excuse me, the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, that which protects your mind, your head, the hope of salvation. This is the armor with which God has given us to stay sober, to stay watchful. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Who's the us here? He's talking about believers in Christ. The ones who are no longer in darkness, but now who are dwelling in light. God did not appoint you to wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul says he's appointed you to obtain salvation, I think he's referencing there not just the salvation that we know and experience and are blessed to have in this life, to be fully justified before God even now, but he's saying in this day, at the return of Christ, you will obtain your final deliverance. Your faith will have become sight. And this happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul reiterates the gospel, who died for us? Substitution. The very heart of the gospel message, Christ in your place. Absorbing the wrath of God for you. And doing it willingly, lovingly. who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive or whether we've gone on to be with the Lord and our body is resting in the grave, we should live together with him. 
And then finally, in verse 11, therefore, comfort each other and edify. The word edify there means to build up, to strengthen. Just as you are also doing. So what are the three, at least the three reasons for considering and contemplating the second coming of Christ? For comfort. For edification. And to be sobered. Be watchful. Verses 1 through 11 represent a call to watchfulness. You know, one of the prophets asked the question, why would you die? Knowing all that you know, why would you die? Why such a foolish action? Said this over and over in recent weeks. Christ is more willing to save you than you are to come. There is no good excuse. There is no good reason to not come to him even today. Justify it as you might. Get as creative as you can with it. Quieten your own conscience if you can. Stick that list you've just made in your mind, stick it in your pocket. And on this day, pull it out and show it to Christ. It will be worth nothing. Nothing at all. Not even garnering a passing glance. Dress yourself up in your own righteousness. Do all the good things you can do. Then do some more. And then do a few more. Keep a list of them. Keep a good track of them. Put those in your other pocket. And on this day... Pull it out and present it to Christ. It's worthless. Less than a filthy rag. Not even garnering a passing glance. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Take both of those lists. All of your reasonings and justifications why you won't come to Christ and why you need not. All of your good works. Set those aside. Flee from them. And flee to Christ. And he'll save you. Cast all of your hope upon him and him alone. He will not turn you away. So in the end, we can say, any person that finds themselves in a righteous God's hell at the final day willingly chose to go there. 
You have no one to blame but yourself. And yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. But I also believe that we as mankind are fully responsible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the second coming of Christ. Lord, might the consideration of it this morning comfort us not just concerning those who have fallen asleep in Christ, but may it comfort us knowing that as we live here in this life, experiencing all of the trouble and trials and tribulations of it, that it does indeed have an end. This is not all there is. Lord, help us to be edified with these truths, to be built up in the faith, to have a hunger and a thirst, not only for righteousness, but for consummation. For everything to come to its great and final end. Lord, we, we long for your return. We desire it. May we be a people that are looking and watching in the soberness of this day, having our lamps trimmed. And Father, I pray in, in your great mercy and grace that you would make yourself known in this hour, that you would show yourself to be the only hope of sinful man, that you would show yourself to be the only righteousness that a holy God will accept. Oh, and then would you impute it? Would you give it freely? No charge, without money, without price. May some leave here with this righteousness in their possession by faith, in Christ alone. We pray it in his name. Amen.